Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 29th of June, 2020. And I'm going to just get started right away. And maybe after I'm finished, uh, do a little bit of housekeeping. So we were talking about serine protease inhibitors. Particularly, I'm talking in those in shortened term for that is serpent not serpent, serpent. And so I'm titling this Serpent Biochemistry and Cancer Roman numeral two. It's a follow-up on the lecture I gave about three or four days ago. So again, this is an anchor podcast and you can reach this on various platforms. And I'm not going to bother with what those are called right now. Let's just get right into the discussion. Again, I'm Dr. Dan Guerra. So I told you last time it was a paper published in Oncology Letters in 2019, and it was looking at which genes were expressed in a PDAC background. Now, remember, that is pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. That's the pancreatic cancer, the most common form, the ductal form. Um, and this paper that I just told you the, uh, the reference to, Onc Letters, 2019, December, uh, and that's volume 18, page 6741-251. Uh, they used uh, various um, pathway analyses and kind of automated gene cataloging platforms to determine, okay, we found these genes uh, that seem to be up and down in these PDAC tissues from human subjects who have the disease. And they want to know, well, gee, what do you think that means in terms of metabolism, signaling, uh, overall disease progression? Uh, of PDAC relative to the expression of these genes. I told you some of them were teleproteinases. Uh, we talked about the plasminogen, plasmin, uh, urokinase system. Um, I talked about fibronectin a little bit. I told you about the tissue inhibitor of teleproteinase. I also told you about a couple of other really key components. One of them was serpin one which would be one of our serine protease inhibitors. Now remember, proteases, such as the metalloproteinases, matrix metalloproteinases, MMPs, are sometimes linked directly to pathology of various diseases, including multiple forms of cancer, pancreatic and hepatic. We've been talking about quite a bit, but you see it also in lung and glioblastoma and other uh, peripheral type cancers. So these metalloproteinases are believed to be induced because of an inflammatory response that has become unregulated. And what the MMPs do is disassociate that extracellular matrix so that the appropriate environment is created, the, the tumor environment is created in such a way that metastasis can be profoundly enhanced. So it's a basic assumption here that we're working on. So today I want to just continue this discussion. I want to remind you that this paper looked at down-regulated and up-regulated genes, and they looked at um, what were the function of the genes relative, and then they went into the specifics of which genes they uh, determined. So some of the functions that seem to be down-regulated are the extracellular matrix receptor interactions, focal adhesion, the phosphatidylinositol 1,3 kinase AKT signaling pathway, which is intracellular, <coughs> Protein digestion and absorption, and digestion can include proteolytic activity. Um, human papillovirus infection also seem to be 
genes associated with that uh, disorder, that infection seem to be downregulated. But interestingly enough, no genes that were involved in pancreatic secretion, fat metabolism, uh, were downregulated. However, genes that were upregulated in the PDAC tissues were pancreatic, those very gene uh, uh, systems, pancreatic secretion. You know, the pancreas has an endocrine and exocrine function. Exocrine function has to do with the secretion of certain metabolites that help in the digestion uh, of food, in, uh, food intake. And these include things like um, proteases. And uh, so like trypsin and elastin and, and enzymes like this that are secreted directly from the pancreas, make it to the intestine and up in the digestive process. So these are basically, these involve the synthesis of proteins and sometimes lipids that help in the digestive process. It's the exocrine function of the pancreas. The endocrine um, function of the pancreas, I'm sure you're fully aware of, that's things like the secretion of insulin and glucagon and somatostatin. All right, so enough said there. So, but also upregulated genes in the PDAC tissues tend to, do, to deal with fat metabolism, both the digestion of lipids that would include at the chylomicron level, those would be lipases, phospholipases, as well as triacylglycerol lipases, Hazel transferases, and also some limited fatty acid metabolism that may involve um, reassociation with um, either glycerol or sphingosine, and then repackaging in the small intestine, loaded onto chylomicrons, and then redistributed throughout the body. So that also includes absorption there. And also, uh, as I just basically uh, inundated the conversation with glycerol, the metabolism seems also to be upregulated. And PDAC. So let's get into this. So the proteins that seem to be involved in PDAC, are, you can put them in the three main categories. So I'm going to do that for you. Protein hydrolytic enzymes, protein convertases. Those are proteins which convert, um, basically they're proteases which convert other proteins into either more soluble or more active or sometimes inactive forms. And then protease inhibitors also seem to be involved in PDAC. Okay, that's, that's the key function of our talk today, right? So that's a really important feature to remember. So one such protease inhibitor is called alpha-1 antitrypsin. It's called A1AT. It's the most abundant. Now here we're talking about liver-derived highly polymorphic glycoprotein. So A1AT is actually synthesized in the liver, but as we're going to see, it may play a role in other cancers. And of course, in liver, we'll be talking about hepatocellular carcinoma in particular. Anyways, A1AT, abundant liver-derived highly polymorphic glycoprotein, polymorphic at the level of glycan chain distribution. And you find it, of course, in circulation. Um, there is a hereditary deficiency of A1AT, it's called A1ATD, and it's the consequence of the accumulation of polymers of that protein because it, the protein has been mutated, in particular amino acid sequences. And you end up having this in the endoplasmic reticulum of the hepatocyte and in other producing cells, such as pancreatic ductal cells. Now, one of the clinical manifestations of the antitrypsin in liver disease it is a childhood cirrhosis and then later in life a, a, a full-blown hepatocellular carcinoma. 
So a lack of a protease inhibitor seems to lead to pathologies ultimately in concluding in HCC. So A1AT is a predominant circulatory protease inhibitor. It's also an acute phase reactant. So what is that? Okay, so I'm going to have to give you some detail of what that is. But it's plasma concentrations increase three to five fold during host responses to inflammation and or tissue injury. So the alpha antitrypsin um, is an archetype member of the serpents, which matter, remember are serine protease inhibitors. It's a super family of structurally related proteins that we've been talking about now for quite a while. And they do have a very high structure homology. Uh, and they have a dominant uh, beta sheet. And they also have a very mobile reactive center loop, which uh, usually is comprised of, of amino uh, alpha helices. And that presents a peptide sequence as a pseudo substrate for the target protease. So that's what it makes itself look like a substrate for the protease, but really it's an inhibitor. Okay, So that's like on, on the gross morphological level, that's how the protease inhibitors function. All right. So let's go on from here. So there's a paper published uh, back in 2011 in the Journal of Pharmacology and Biolide Sciences. This is J Farm Biolide Sci 2011, published in the their series between January and March. That would have been volume three, pages 118 to 127. That's the paper I'm looking at here. Now, what they tell you in this paper is the following. <clears throat> Any animal undergoing external or internal stress, um, and as their health uh, is diminished for various reasons because of this stress, there's an activation of both the innate and acquired immune systems. We've talked about this now for years in uh, this exact uh, system, uh, uh, both in Barrett Med and in Authentic Biochemistry uh, Systems Lectures. So the innate immune system, of course, covers aspects of host defense mechanisms not dependent on the specific response. And that, uh, that would include a production of antibody. And it not only stimulates this, uh, this um, initial host, host defense response, right? It's the innate. It only stimulates leukocyte activity, but also affects lots of other host metabolic processes, including changes in carbon metabolism. <clears throat> the varied reactions of the host to the infection, inflammation, or trauma, all of those are collectively called APR, or acute phase response. And they encompass a wide range of pathophysiological responses, like pyrexia, like leukocytosis, hormonal regulation changes, muscle protein degradation, very important, all of that combines to minimize tissue damage, but at the same time enhancing repair. That's what APR is supposed to do. Another of these systemic responses to disease is an increase in the production by the liver of a number of plasma proteins, which are all the co collectively called APPs. What do you think that stands for? That is right, acute phase proteins. So the APR itself is a very complex mechanism. It involves local and systemic effectors. One of the effects that occur because of the effectors uh, and then whatever response to those, such as receptors, 
is, is a change in the concentration of various plasma proteins. Mainly, they're synthesized in the liver, as I've been saying. They're called the APPs, right? So those are acute phase proteins. So the APR is induced by hormones, and the most common hormonal regulation actually comes downstream and involves cytokines. Cytokines, of course, work from a site of local injury, and so they can also react from the hepatocyte, right? And they actually synthesize APPs. The uh, cytokines induce the synthesis at the transcriptional level of APPs. Of course, cytokines have multiple sources. That's why this is just limited to the liver. Multiple sources, multiple targets, multiple functions. Cytokines are all over the map. We've talked about these. There are mostly pro-inflammatory, but there are also anti-inflammatory cytokines. Uh, found, Found basically in all animal species, but of course, what we're interested in here is humans. So there's a change in the concentration of APPs, and it's due in, to changes in the production that, are, that occur and are included within the hepatocyte. And of course, the magnitude of the increase varies with about 50% in the case of a protein called C-reactive protein, or CRP, and another protein called SAA, or serum amyloid A, And this is under the influence of interleukins. Which ones? The pro-inflammatory species, IL-1, IL-2, also cytokines such as tumor necrosis factor alpha. Um, And of course, this induces liver cells to synthesize and then secrete the acute phase proteins. So the maximum serum concentration of these APPs is typically reached in a day or two after the initial stress and then the cytokine induction. There's a decline that ultimately uh, that coincides with the recovery of the infection. And generally, there's multiple feedback regulatory loops that limit the response that ultimately leads to ultimate resolution uh, of the APP uh, uh, mobilization. And that happens usually within four to seven days after the initial stimulus or stress. If there's no further stress occurs, then it stops. And there's a receptor triggering, and that works under a repeat pulse phase response mechanism. And so the APR response can become chronic at low levels. And this basically would present as a chronic disease state, right? So that would include things that we globally call chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation is a hallmark of obesity, in humans. And I don't mean gross obesity, I mean also just overweight. And we went into a lot of detail how obesity is linked to inflammation relative to the production of cytokines in the periphery and the signaling from adipose tissue, uh, even working through the HPA axis and the CNS. I'm not going to go through that right now. I just uh, want you to recall that obesity is a pro-inflammatory status in people who are obese. So once you have that, or let's say you have rheumatoid arthritis, uh, that would be a chronic autoimmune inflammatory disease, right? Anyway, any of these inflammatory stimuli are going to ultimately cause an increase in serum concentrations of the acute phase proteins. Um, But the increase is lower in, in these kind of chronic diseases 
than when you get an acute episode of inflammation. Now, this is really important. So if you're taking drugs that are suppressing the immune response, such as corticosteroids, because you have a pre-existing hyperimmune response because of your obesity, you're going to be keeping the tonicity of the acute phase proteins at some level, right? At some molar level in the blood. But it doesn't mean that none of them will be produced. It only means there'll be a certain equipoise of concentration of these acute phase proteins in circulation. But when you get an induction of an inflammation, that is a frank induction, for example, because of an acute stress, let's say a wound, or let's say an infection, such as a bacterial pathogen or a viral pathogen or a parasite, then you're going to get a superinduction of APPs, and you're going to also get a superinduction of the inflammatory response, which goes way beyond the equipoise that had been regulated by the chronic use of corticosteroids to suppress the immune response. So understand there are two mechanisms going on here. There's a steady state, and then there's the lift off the steady state and developing a sharp increase in pro-inflammatory systems and acute phase proteins go right along with them. So three most important acute phase proteins as when this paper was published are that CRP, serum amyloid P, and the, the SAA. So there are three total, but there are lots of other APPs that have been described since 2011. And some of them are going to include your protease inhibitors, okay? Um, so I want you to understand that this is a growing field. And every time I look at the literature, we find more a, um, acute phase proteins being described. And sometimes the ones that were initially described as being the hallmark keynote features of APP tend to be far less potent or significant when APP is involved directly in the pathophysiology, which is where we want to ultimately get to in this talk. Okay, so let's get into some of the exact details here. So remember, I'm talking about APR, okay? That is the acute phase response. So when I'm, I'm just going to call it APR from now on. So APR is stimulated by the release of a host of cytokines. I told you what they were. IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and they can come from macrophage monocyte lineages directly at a site of inflammation or at a lesion or at an infection point, right? So this is all part of the innate immune response, right? So TNF-alpha and interleukin-1-beta and an interferon gamma, which is tuned up like, say, in a viral infection, are all going to be crucial for the expression of inflammatory mediators at the local level. Those are going to be inflammatory prostaglandins, like the leukotrienes. Uh, and these are going to be, leukotrienes are going to be coming from the lipoxygenase pathway, but you're also going to get the prostaglandin family, and those are all going to be coming from cyclooxygenase, mediated oxygenation of preformed, um, either omega-6, usually omega-6, very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, usually linked to the two position of a glycerol lipid, or sometimes is amide linked to a preformed sphingolipid. That fatty acid gets cleaved off by a sphingomyelinase if it's sphingomyelin, or by a phospholipase like phospholipase A2, 
if it's a glycerol 3-phosphate backbone. And then that fatty acid get oxygenated with either COX or LOX isozymes. And that's going to be your local response. And you've got to understand that that's all part of this component, right? So you also get an increase in glucocorticoids during the APR. And that is also the result of a cytokine stimulation. But there we're talking about the pituitary adrenal axis. And so you're going to produce our old friend, adrenocorticotrophic hormone, right? And from that, you're going to make glucocorticoids. And you see that those glucocorticoids usually act, acting regulatory, but depending on the species of the glucocorticoid, the level of molarity in the serum and therefore binding to its uh, molar consonant, which would be the receptor, you're going to have sometimes stimulation of pathways. So what you generate in, of course, all neurocrine, endocrine, paracrine, autocrine systems are regulatory loops. Of course, there's positive and negative. The negative can involve the inhibition of the synthesis of all those initial pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-6, IL-1-beta, TNF. Cortisol, that's one of the main things it does. In fact, it inhibits the synthesis of interleukin-1 and TNF in the monocytes, okay? And that has all been induced by previous induction of interleukin-6. So you understand that these, these uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines work to turn on other pro-inflammatory cytokines, all still working at the innate immune, um, innate immune cell response, macrophage monocytes I'm talking about here. So now there's a mechanism of stimulation of the production of acute phase proteins in the liver, okay? So this would be the hepatic production. And that's also induced by pro-inflammatory cytokines. Been extensively studied, and the induction of these APPs by IL-1 following binding to the IL-6 receptor, after IL-6 is produced, causes the phosphorylation and degradation of a protein called inhibitor kappa B, or IKB. The inhibitor of transcription factor nucleofactor kappa B, that's the NF kappa B, leads to a release of NF kappa B and subsequent activation of all these acute phase uh, gene transcriptions. And again, so the liver responds by producing a large number of acute phase responses. Same time, the production of a number, so that means temporarily dissociated depending on how the stress peaks and then troughs, peaks and then troughs over very short time periods, two, four, six, eight, 12 hour time periods. And some of these then can result to a massive increase in pro-inflammatory cytokine production. And these can lead to high levels of morbidity and even mortality. And even like the incomplete shutdown of all of the organs and death, right? So that's ultimately what can occur. So this has been well studied uh, clinically. So the liver responds by producing a lot of these APPs, as I just said. The positive APPs are things like CRP, D-dimer protein, mannose binding protein, the alpha-1 adenine antitrypsin I just told you about, a partner of that, the alpha-1 antichymotrypsin, the alpha-2 macroglobulin, which I talked to, oh, a few months ago about when we are talking about hepatic cancer, uh, fibrinogen, prothrombin, factor eight, von Wildebrand factor. A lot of these are plasma-associated proteins that with platelets, erythrocytes, and immune response. You also get the plasminogen, plasmin. You get complement factors. You get ferritin for binding iron. 
You get the SAP, SSA, SAA, excuse me. You get seruloplasmin, and you also get one final protein I just mentioned, heptoglobin. So the positive APPs, positive acute proteins, acute phase proteins, serve different physiological functions than, of course, the negative ones, right? And this doesn't take uh, any kind of uh, clear understanding to know that you're going to have opposing effects. But you know from listening to me that opposing doesn't always mean one 880 degrees contradictory effects. You can have contrarian effects, which means that both systems can be functioning, but they could be temporally or even temporal spatially um, dislocated. And when that happens, you can have a function that is tuning up an immune response and getting inflammatory. At the same time, you have a functionality that's tuning up an anti-inflammatory functionality, either in adjacent, adjacent tissue beds or even as a signaling module so that the overall modulation of the system is going to lead to a modality of the effect, right? Um, does it occur? Can it occur? Must it occur? That kind of modality matrix that I've talked about in the past. So, all right. So the positive APPs, they serve lots of different functions in the immune system. Some act to destroy or inhibit growth of microbes directly. Um, others have negative feedback on the inflammatory response. The one we're talking about now, the class of the serpents. So on the basis of their mode of action, APPs are classified in basically a couple of categories. Protease inhibitors, like the alpha-1 antitrypsin. Coagulation proteins, like fibrinogen and prothrombin. Complement proteins, those include C2, 3, 4, and 5, I think. And transport proteins, that be HPCP and hemopexin. So now let's jump up and let's, so I was just reviewing some older literature to give you an idea that all, the whole discussion I just gave you is to review in the literature, okay, what I mean by acute phase response and acute phase proteins. So with the minute or so I have left, I just want to um, give you kind of a, a brief background of where we're going to be going with this, okay? And then we're going to hit this right up next time. So quick response from the Clinical Experimental Immunology Journal, 2015, February, volume 179, page 161, ongoing. This paper will tell you there's a classical assumption that the activity of the alpha-1 antitrypsin we've just been introducing is anti-inflammatory via direct binding and catalytic inhibition of inflammatory neutrophil enzymes that are themselves proteases. Which ones? I already mentioned a lot of them. Elastase, proteinase 3, and another one called cathepsin G, okay? AAT deficiency presents clinically as a lack of control over pro-inflammatory cytokines. Those include IL-1 beta 6, TNF-alpha, IL-8, and an infusion of AAT to human peripheral blood mononuclear cells actually does reduce inflammation. So those are sort of the classical parameters that I want you to be thinking about when you think of what is the normal role of this antitrypsin, which again is one of these acute phase proteins, okay? So we're well into now the molecular biochemical physiology and pathophysiology of what ultimately is gonna rise back up and talk about 
duct, uh, PDAC and the pedocellular carcinoma. So I'm going to leave you with that because my time is just about up. And we'll talk about Patreon later, but I really would appreciate it if you went to the show notes and signed up to Patreon because it's really going to help me continue to give these lectures. Again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, hoping you're having a pleasant Monday afternoon on the 29th of June, 2020. And bye for now.